0: Hello world, this is Roger Corville, and this is For the Hope, where we keep it real as we read through the Bible conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and learn how to fall more in love with Jesus and communicate that love to the people in his world. You ready? Let's roll. Welcome. I need to quit dragging this thing out. I need to get this podcast cut over to a new host and resubmitted to Apple and that means that what I need to do is just quit relying on SoundCloud and those of you that listen on SoundCloud are just going to need to find me at ForTheHope.com or knock on wood within the next week you'll find For the hope on Apple Podcasts Spotify etc that said I'm going to read through the book of James one chapter at a time, and I hope you hang with me. But I'm just warning you now. If you're listening on SoundCloud or one of the former places you subscribed to, The Reflection, I, gotta, I just got to cut over. There's no perfect way to do this, and so I think I just need to take the plunge. This week, James chapter 2, this week... We are in the NET translation. By the way, if you haven't checked out the NET, it is the most footnoted Bible in the world. Project led in part by Daniel Wallace, who's a professor of textual criticism. That's not his actual title at uh, Dallas Seminary. This guy, dude, is a is a brilliant investigator of the original manuscripts and I just got a lot of respect for him and this particular translation not the smoothest translation it's a little more literal but highly accurate and totally and utterly footnoted if you want to understand times and places there are textual variations in original manuscripts and that kind of thing James chapter 2 My brothers and sisters, do not show prejudice if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and a poor person enters in filthy clothes, do you pay attention to the one who is finely dressed and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor person, "Mm, you stand over there or sit on the floor. If so, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? By the way, that's what you call a rhetorical question. The answer is, yeah, yeah, you have. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, did I not choose God? Did not God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? But but you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich oppressing you and dragging you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the good name of the one you belong to? But if you fulfill the royal law as expressed in this scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show prejudice... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For the one who obeys the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a violator of the law. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law that gives freedom. By a law that gives freedom. I'm going to say that again. Speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that gives freedom. For judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, I'm just going to pause right there and point out one really big thing. We often forget. We, we think of of sin versus righteousness as a scorekeeping thing. And by the way, not only is that really popular or prevalent in the world, but the world's second largest religion, Islam, works that way. It's a scorekeeping thing, right? Works-based religion is a scorekeeping thing. Oop, did I make more deposits than I made withdrawals? James chapter 2, verse 10. Get this. For the one who obeys the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. It doesn't take a lot of sin to taint your life it doesn't make a lot of lying to make you a liar so not only are we all guilty but we're guilty against the infinitely good one meaning our our transgression is it's an infinite failure Ah. Uh, how uplifting is that boy doesn't that make good news good news when it's not about scorekeeping because i don't know about you but i kind of suck at the scorekeeping version of jesus james 2 verse 14 here we go what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but does not have works can this kind of faith save him If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well. But you do not give them what the body needs? What good is it? So also, faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. (laughs) Show me your faith without works. And I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, well and good. Even even the demons believe that and tremble with fear. That is a great point, isn't it? <laughs> demons believe in God. Duh. <laughs> that doesn't mean they do. That doesn't mean they obey and um, seek his kingdom first, right? But would you like evidence, you empty fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that his faith was working together with his works and his faith was perfected by works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Now Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And similarly, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Well, there you go. James, getting in your business. Getting in your business. Now, yesterday I mentioned you know, the the tension between what James seems to be. James seems to be clearly saying that you, you have to have works or you are not saved. And that is where I would encourage you, especially if you are newer to the Bible or just investigating this, to look at what the entirety of the Bible says and keep it in the context of the Bible. The right way to interpret scripture is by scripture and in the context of all of scripture. And it's it's easier to take something out of context when we only look at it in one little piece uh, or, you know, one, one chunk of the movie as opposed to the whole movie. That said, what is James talking about here? If you just sit around and go, hey, uh, you know, I'll pray for you. I hope you do. I hope you get better. As opposed to going and meeting a real need. And I think there's a, a good bit of context there, right? He talked about, in fact, where we ended up yesterday. James talked about a correct response to God's word. And I think that's the, that's an important point to close with here. You can s- think about your significant other. You can say, I love you. But don't, don't they know? Don't, don't, isn't the way that they feel it and sense it and respond. Really sometimes not just a matter of words. How about you experienced that? Somebody says, I love you. But. There, you just, just you, you don't feel it. I'm not saying we don't use words sometimes, but you can say the words "I love you" and have it be meaningless. And I think James here is arguing that if this thing is real, the seed isn't. <laughs> there's going to be a seed that you're going to water. And it's going to grow. And what is evidence of having an appropriate light and nourishment and water? It grows. And if you're not growing, then maybe, anyway, you get it. Hard stuff, but good stuff. So good. Hey, transition time. You know, we are coming upon Easter and I've often thought, you know, this, this is, this is the most important holiday of the Christian year. Like I'm not suggesting we put up a Christmas tree. But well, we should make it as big a deal as we make Christmas, right? Christmas seems to be a lot more fun. And we try to make Easter fun with eggs and bunnies, which means Jack Diddley, right? But the most glorious thing in all of history, at least as we're concerned, right? God had to kind of create the whole cosmos, which was probably arguably as big a miracle as the resurrection. <laughs> Bigger. If he can create the whole cosmos out of nothing, then a resurrection of one of the creatures in that cosmos is probably an easy foregone conclusion, right? We've been working through Peter Kreff's arguments with regard to the, to the various ways that you can look at the data Remember that the question on the table is which theory about the resurrection best accounts for the data? And he says, hey, there's five possible things, one of which is simply Christianity. Christianity is its own explanation. And then there's the swoon theory we talked about a couple days ago. And yesterday we talked about the hallucination theory. And there were nine and 13 arguments, respectively, Today, it gets a little more complicated. We move to the conspiracy theory of the four other alternatives. And we've got seven arguments to get through. Here's Peter. Why couldn't the disciples have made up the whole story? Argument number one. Blaise Pascal, who... Pause. Remember Blaise Pascal was philosopher, mathematician, theologian too a little bit I think. I am I'm not a but he wrote his his own apologetic. Kind of an interesting guy if I remember correctly. Blaise Pascal gives a simple psychologically sound proof for why this is unthinkable. This meaning couldn't the disciples have made up the whole story? This is a kind of a paragraph-level quote from Pascal in Pensées. The apostles were either deceived or deceivers. Either supposition is difficult, for it is not possible to imagine that a man has risen from the dead. While Jesus was with them, he could sustain them. But afterwards, if he did not appear to them, who, who did make them act? The hypothesis that the apostles were knaves is quite absurd. Follow it out to the end, and imagine these twelve men meeting after Jesus' death and conspiring to say that he is risen from the dead. This means attacking all the powers that be. The human heart is singularly susceptible to fickleness, to change, to promises, to bribery. One of them had only to deny his story under these inducements or still more or still more because of possible imprisonment, tortures and death. and and they would all have been lost. Follow that out. end of quote. Oh, that's an interesting argument from uh, from Pascal. Here's, here's Peter writing again. The cruncher in this argument is the historical fact that no one, weak or strong, saint or sinner, Christian or heretic, ever confessed, freely or under pressure, bribe or even torture, that the whole story of the resurrection was a fake, a lie, a deliberate deception. Even when people broke under torture, denied Christ and worshipped Caesar, they never let that cat out of the bag, never revealed that the resurrection was their conspiracy. For that cat was never in the bag. No Christian believed the resurrection was a conspiracy. If they had, they wouldn't have become Christians. Argument number two about the conspira- about whether or not conspiracy theory is the best explanation of the resurrection data. If they made up the story... They were the most creative, clever, intelligent fantasists in history, far surpassing Shakespeare or Dante or Tolkien. Fisherman's fish stories are never that elaborate, that convincing, that life-changing, and that enduring. Argument number three. The disciples' character strongly argues against such a conspiracy on the part of all of them, with no dissenters. They were simple, honest, common peasants, not cunning, conniving liars. They weren't even lawyers. (laughs) Their sincerity is proved by their words and deeds. They willingly died for their quote-unquote conspiracy. Nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. The change in their lives from fear to faith from despair to confidence from confusion to certitude from runaway cowardice to steadfast boldness under threat and persecution not only proves that their sincerity not only proves their sincerity but testifies to some powerful cause of it ooh that is a killer point their lives not only proved their sincerity of their beliefs testifies to some powerful cause of it. Can a lie cause such a transformation? Are truth and goodness such enemies that the the greatest good in history, sanctity, has come from the greatest lie? That also is a rhetorical question, right? Peter writes, Use your imagination and sense of perspective here. Imagine 12 poor, fearful, stupid, (laughs) <laughs> he puts in parentheses, read the gospel's exclamation point. Imagine 12 poor stupid peasants changing the hard-nosed Roman world with a lie. And not an easily digested attractive lie either. St. Thomas Aquinas says, and this is kind of a uh, another paragraph level quote from Summa contra Gentiles In the midst of the tyranny of the persecutors, an innumerable throng of people, both simple and learned, flocked to the Christian faith. In this faith, there are truths proclaimed that surpass every human intellect. The pleasures of the flesh are curbed. It is taught that the things of the world should be spurned. Now, for the minds of mortal men to assent to this thing is the greatest of miracles— This wonderful conversion of the world to the Christian faith is the clearest witness, for it would be truly more wonderful than all the signs if the world had been led by simple and humble men to believe such lofty truths, to accomplish such difficult actions, and to have such high hopes. End of quote for Thomas Aquinas. Argument number four against conspiracy theory as an explanation there could be no possible motive for such a lie lies are always told for some selfish advantage what advantage did the quote-unquote conspirators derive from their quote-unquote lie they were hated scorned persecuted excommunicated imprisoned tortured exiled crucified boiled alive roasted beheaded disemboweled and fed to lions Hardly a perk, a catalog of perks. (laughs) That's a killer list. Argument number five. If the resurrection was a lie, the Jews would have produced the corpse and nipped this feared suspicion in the bud. All they had to do was go out to the tomb and get it. The Roman soldiers and their leaders were on their side, not on the Christians' side. And if the Jews couldn't get the body because the disciples stole it, how did they do that? The arguments against the swoon theory hold here, too. Unarmed peasants could not have overpowered Roman soldiers or rolled away a great stone while they slept on duty. Argument number six. The disciples could not have gotten away with proclaiming the resurrection in Jerusalem, same time, same place, full of eyewitnesses, if it had been a lie. William Lane Craig says, kind of a longer quote here from uh his book knowing the truth about the resurrection the gospels were written in such a temporal and geographical proximity to the events that they record let me say that again this is an important point the gospels were written in such a temporal and geographical proximity to the events they record meaning physical location and recency that it would have been almost impossible to fabricate events. The fact that the disciples were able to proclaim the resurrection in Jerusalem in the face of their enemies a few weeks after the crucifixion shows that what they proclaimed was true, for they could never have proclaimed the resurrection and been believed under such if under such circumstances had it not occurred. Right? Remember Paul's argument about the eyewitnesses (laughs) most of them are still alive go ask them argument number seven last one against the conspiracy theory if there had been a conspiracy it would certainly have been unearthed by the disciples adversaries who had both the interest and the power to expose any fraud common experience shows that such intrigues are inevitably exposed in conclusion, if the resurrection was a concocted, conspired lie, it violates all known historical and psychological laws of lying. It is, then, as unscientific as, unrepeatable, unique, and untestable as the resurrection itself. But unlike the resurrection, it is also contradicted by things we do know of the above points. And thus concludes... Peter Kreff's seven arguments against the conspiracy theory as the best explanation of the resurrection facts. I love you, and I hope you feel it, because I really do. Amen? Amen.